This morning we'll be looking at John chapter 10, verses 31 through 42, here bringing an end to this entire section that really starts way back at chapter 7 with the Feast of Tabernacles. And the even though this section of chapter 10 is primarily about the Feast of Dedication, which took place a couple of months after the Feast of Tabernacles, the part that ties it together is that all 7 through 10 is about the division of the people. Some say Jesus is the Messiah, and others say, no, he cannot be. And this uh, ending of this chapter brings to a close this section about the division of the people going back and forth about who he is. So let us take a look here at what John has written, what the Holy Spirit has given us, and let the Holy Spirit tell us what we need to hear. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. O oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this word of Jesus and the good works he does and being one and in you and in, in you and him. And Father, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, we thank you that you are in us and we are in you. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we look at these words, that you would open our eyes and open our ears. But we also pray, Father, that you would just bless us with yourself. Let us see you in the richness and the fullness and the glory and the beauty of who you are and how much you love us. And I pray, Lord, that every word spoken by my mouth this morning would be the words you would have spoken for your people to bless them, to strengthen them, and to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have the Jews. They're ready to trade stones for good works with Jesus. Jesus has said that here in the verses before that about the sheep and the following him, and he and the Father are one, and they just can't handle that. And they just pick up these stones 
Remembering this is the Feast of Dedication, celebrating the liberation of Jerusalem, of the temple from the Greeks by the Maccabeans. One of the acts the Maccabeans were known for was their good works. And here we are with the Jews stoning Jesus because of his good works. Jesus, highlighting good works here, serves as a comparison both of himself to the Maccabeans as well as those who want to stone him as to the Greek sympathizers of the Greek occupation in 67 B.C. They were betrayers of their people, these sympathizers. And here Jesus is drawing out how they are behaving just like those sympathizers. And he, as a one who is doing good works, is similar to the Maccabean deliverer. And of course, the great deliverer from all sin and death. And this is not too much of a stretch here because this idea that they're trying to stone that person who is the legitimate heir of Jerusalem. The word that John uses for stoning here and what the word he uses throughout his gospel is used twice in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 16, verse 6, and then again in verse 13. That was where a descendant of Saul, when David is on the run from Absalom after Absalom's betrayal and insurrection, he and his party or group are leaving Jerusalem, and one of Saul's descendants stands on the hilltop, on the ridgeline along where they're running or walking, throwing stones at David. And John is intentionally drawing this comparison of the bitter descendants casting stones at the Davidic Messiah. He is saying, this is the true heir to the throne of David. And you want to pick up and throw stones at him just like Shemiah did in Second Samuel. But of course, they defend themselves by saying, oh no, this is really just, you know, we're just, we're just defending the word of God because of your blasphemy. Calling yourself equal with God. I mean, it's not like this hasn't happened before. I mean, we're already four or five places through the great I am's. So it's not like this isn't, that's not like this is the first time he says it, but yet they're acting like it's the first time he says it. And Jesus responds to them as to why he shouldn't be stoned is to quote from Psalm 82. I'll just read the whole Psalm to you because the context in which it occurs actually is relevant to this moment. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither. This is the the false gods are the unjust rulers. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. 
All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, this usage in Psalm 82 seems kind of odd about, well, they are gods and you are gods. But the best way to understand this is that it's a divine court where God is confronting kings, primarily Gentile kings, for their failure to rule rightly. In fact, in some Jewish writings, judges were figuratively gods. In fact, we see Moses become as a god to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7. So this idea that they are gods with a small g is what they're referring to here in Psalm, what the psalmist is referring to. This idea that these rulers, these human individuals who are divinely appointed for a role in which they are not fulfilling. They use it in corruption for their own gain and advancement without interest or caring for the others who they are ruling. So what is Jesus' point, though, in using it here in this passage? Well, if these rulers are referenced as gods with a small g, then Jesus, being the Son of God, is even more legitimate of a claim to deity. Remember, the Jews' reasons for stoning Jesus is they understood he is saying he is equal with God. And if God himself calls the rulers gods with a small g, he, the Son of God, is even more worthy of being called the Son of God with a capital S. The other thing here is the context that I mentioned of Psalm 82. Jesus may also indirectly be making an accusation against the Jewish rulers. They are behaving exactly as those confronted by God in the divine court of Psalm 82. Look back at what it says, what the condemnation from God is. is. How long will you, rulers, judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's what they're not doing. And look at these Jewish leaders. They've been doing the same thing. Here Jesus is bringing deliverance to the afflicted and the destitute. And they're ready to kill him for it. And they're doing pretty much nothing for the afflicted and the destitute. They're not doing anything to deliver them from the hand of the wicked, including the ultimate wicked one who seeks to destroy their souls. They're not doing nothing. These people are going to hell and you're not doing nothing to help just to turn this around and bring salvation to them. In fact, as Jesus says later, you actually make it worse so that it's impossible because of all your extra rules that you add in. This is the condemnation. Jesus is using, by quoting Psalm 82, he's turning their own love for the word right back on top of them to show them their errors 
and sinfulness. Forget trying to stone me, Jesus is saying. Just look at how you are behaving just like these Gentile rulers in Psalm 82. And then verse 8 in Psalm 82, the very last word, is no coincidence. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And what do we say about Jesus? He's the king of the universe. All the nations from every tribe and tongue will worship him at the altar. Verse 8 has not happened, but it's going to happen. And those who, those who rule unjustly and unfairly with no regard for life, they're just not going to have a pleasant experience at that moment in front of Jesus' altar. But in this particular case, just dealing with the Jews themselves, they're about to find out just how unpleasant life will be. They have no idea what's coming 43 years later at the destruction of Jerusalem. And then when Jesus refers to these works of the Father, proving that his identity is in the Father, from verses 37 and 38, Jesus goes back to good works he has been doing as proof of his oneness with the Father. Remember what he's saying here. Listen to what he's saying. No one could do. Remember, even this is what the Jews themselves said throughout chapters 9 and 10. No one could do the works he does unless he is from God, was the testimony from their very own mouths. And he's pointing back to that, to those words they spoke two months earlier. There's just no way somebody can heal a blind man, born blind, unless he is sent by God to do it. There's no way he can heal a lame man and make him walk unless he is sent by God to do it. And if he does it on the Sabbath, then I guess God's okay with healing people on the Sabbath. Even if it's work. I'm sorry. I just get so indignant with this, with these boneheads. (laughs) Thank you for that affirmation, Steve. I mean, really? The man is born blind. You're going to make him wait one more day? To get healed? I mean, he's probably, I mean, most likely he was in his late 30s to early 40s. 30, 30 plus years of blindness and you're going to make him wait one more day just because it's Saturday? You're going to get ill about that? And I bet if the tables were turned and they're the ones sitting in the temple blind, they're not going to wait till Sunday to ask Jesus to heal them. I bet they are not willing to live by the same rules they want everybody else to live by. If they were blind, I bet you they're going to be praying and asking God to heal them on Sabbath. And if it's Saturday, who cares? Just make my eyes open. Why is it so hard for them to do the right thing? 
Why, why is it just, why, seriously, why is it so hard for them to do the right thing? I guess it's for the same reason it's so hard for us to do the right thing. The right thing doesn't always advance what we want. The right thing isn't always easy. Sometimes the right thing is hard. Sometimes the right thing is expensive. Both financially and everything else. But Jesus doesn't seem to be bothered by that. He's going to do the right thing because it is the right thing to do. I guess there's a lesson there for us. Okay, that was all bonus material. It wasn't even really part of the sermon. Obviously, there was somebody that needed to hear that, but not me. Yes, someone's correctly laughing, right? I am the person needed to hear that. But Jesus goes back to showing his good works as the proof of his oneness with the Father. You're standing there in the temple on a December afternoon and you're picking up stones to throw at him because he claimed to be God. Well, has he done anything that actually says he is God? Yes, he's done plenty of things to show he's actually God. That's one of the reasons why Jesus asked, for which of my good works are you going to stone me for? Then he escapes out of their hands again. I guess his good works were good enough to get him out of the building. And I don't mean that like the good works earned him anything, but that his good works were good enough to prove he is who he says he is. So because he is who he says he is, he gets out of the building. Elvis leaves the building before anybody can throw a stone. He just slips through their hands because as John has said several times before, it was not his time. Not even this group could grab Jesus because he wasn't going to be grabbed until it was his time. That's a pretty powerful evidence of who you are. I mean, there's only a couple of exits. If you haven't studied a diagram or a replica of the temple, there's only a couple of exits. There's really only a couple of ways to get out of there when you're standing in the place where Jesus is standing And it sounds like he's kind of surrounded by a bunch of Jews and they still can't grab him. They still can't get their hands on him. It's his divinity. It's almost as if he was hidden from them. That is invisibility. No, I don't mean an invisibility cloak. Yes, not Harry Potter invisibility cloak. Jesus doesn't need an invisibility cloak. As the divine son of God, he just hides himself from their sight as God always does from those who've rejected him.
We're looking at that this morning in our Bible study time earlier with Paul on the road to Damascus and how the associates traveling with Paul could see the light that was shining on him and they could hear the voice, but they couldn't understand it. It was hidden from them, just as Jesus was hidden from them. He walked through their midst and they did not know who he was, even though they had just been looking at him. And as he leaves, Jesus just goes to a place sufficiently distant from Jerusalem. This location happens to be the place where John was baptizing before. By now, John the Baptist is dead. And it's probably, okay, we not we don't really know exactly where John the Baptist's baptismal site was. It probably was on the eastern shore of the Jordan River into what is now this country of Jordan, just north of the Dead Sea. This was where John the Baptist would have spent most of his time ministering. And here, those who lived around the area would still remember all the things that John the Baptist had said in his words specifically about Jesus. And it's just such a stunning contrast in verses 41 and 42 to the Jews. Because of John the Baptist's words about Jesus having come true, they believed in Jesus. It's stunning to me here, this contrast. John did no sign, okay? First off, John wasn't a miracle worker. He was a prophetic utterer who said unto them, the Savior and the Messiah is coming. As the Elijah type figure from Malachi, he was to proclaim the coming of the Lord, not to do miracles. And here the people who listened to John the Baptist the most, testimony their testimony was that he did no miraculous signs in contrast to Jesus doing them. And it doesn't appear as though Jesus does any miraculous signs while he's in Bethany, east of the Jordan. Perhaps he did, but it sounds like he didn't. And yet they believed because of the things he did do and said that were that John had said had come true about Jesus. And there was Jesus in Jerusalem doing miraculous signs and they wouldn't believe. And this is encouraging to us. Think about this for a second, brothers and sisters. If I'm correct about Jesus not doing miraculous signs in Bethany, east of the Jordan, those people are just like you and me. We never got to see Jesus do a miraculous sign. And neither did they. But they heard the words of the prophets describing who the Messiah would be. And Jesus did all of that. And it was enough for them to believe, just as it's enough for us to believe. We find ourselves much more aligned with the residents of Bethany east of the Jordan than we do with those in Bethany just outside the gates of Jerusalem. We believe even though Jesus never stood in front of us and did a miraculous sign. 
yet we know that he did the miraculous sign of transforming our hearts. All right, so what? I mean, this is all really great insight to the word and what's happening here and all this wonderful storytelling by the Apostle John to draw the dark, stark contrast between the Jews and those who believe and those who don't and why they believe and why they don't. So what? Well, I know it sounds basic and elementary, but believe Jesus is who he says he is. Just believe that's who he, when he says, I am, believe that's who he is. When he says, I am your good shepherd, believe he is your good shepherd. I mean, I know it sounds redundant and unnecessary in a church full of Jesus' disciples. However, sometimes we need reminding he is who he says he is. You know, as I quoted from Calvin two weeks ago, sometimes our faith falters. Sometimes things happen and we start to question that Jesus is really who he says he is. And that includes your pastor. As Jesus said, if you are struggling to believe, then look at his past works in your life and believe on that. You have testimony to what Jesus has done in your past. When your faith falters and you struggle to believe he is who he says he is, look back to what he has done for you and in you and believe on that. Secondly, remember who you are. Brothers and sisters, remember who you are. You may not be a God with a small g, but you're sons and daughters of God with a capital G. You're his children. You're children of the one true and living God who was and is and will be, who spoke light into existence, who spoke the stars into existence, who spoke life into your soul at your conversion. Now, this does not make you some demigod like Greek mythology, but it does make you children of the promise. Live like it. Live like you're children of the promise, not children of something else. Okay, just so we're clear, I'm talking to myself. And I'm struggling with all of this just like some of you are. I struggle to remember that I'm a child of the promise and to live like it. Lastly, just as Jesus was called to do good works by his Father, Realize also, my brothers and sisters, that there are good works for you and I to do as well because we are children of the promise. And by good works, 
I don't just mean um, doing good things for people who are poor and helping the poor. I mean doing the good works of proclaiming God's truth and glory. Look, I need, look, okay, I need you to tell me about the great things God is doing in your heart, mind, soul, body, and life. I need to hear what he is doing in you, just like all the rest of us need to hear it. Don't hide your light under a bushel, please. I beg you for my good alone, don't hide it under a bushel, but let it burn brightly because I still need hope every day just like you. And it comes often by your own testimony of what our Father in Heaven is doing in you and through you. Now, you and I probably won't be healing people on the Sabbath like Jesus. That probably won't be one of the good works that are assigned to us. But we will be leading them to the one who can heal them. Lead on, brothers and sisters. Lead on to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, who is sufficient for things such as this? To see your glory and then to proclaim it. To walk in the good works that you have created for us so that we will glorify your name and participate in your kingdom. May it be so, O Lord, every day. In Jesus' holy name, amen.